We've been working on Create the Village for some time. Both the design and production of this podcast predated the COVID-19 crisis. However, we decided to push pause for the moment on the original show design so that we could launch with this three-part series. We're conducting these interviews by phone because we're honoring the social distancing protocols. I hope you are too. I am Egbert Perry, and this is Create the Village. Across the U.S., state and county offices have been overrun with laid-off and furloughed workers seeking a live employee to speak with because the normally reliable and efficient online systems have been overwhelmed and are crashing. In Texas, for example, the Texas Workforce Commission says in just over a two-week period, it has helped more than 700,000 Texans apply for unemployment insurance, roughly the same number the agency helped in all of 2019. A year's worth of processing in a two-week period. Amazing. Before COVID-19, the commission received an average of 13,000 calls per day. The commission reports it's experiencing increases of nearly 23,000%. One day last week, they fielded 3 million calls in a 24-hour period. Staggering numbers like these mean people are anxious about more than their future. They're worried about the here and now, about paying this month's bills. As we've been researching the topics for these shows, I've been amazed by how quickly our society has changed. Think about it. If on February 1st, I said to you that by April 1st, most Americans would be either laid off furloughed, or working from home, what would you have thought? If I said you couldn't go to a restaurant or a movie theater, would you believe me? But that's where we are today. In many ways, our economic and social worlds have been overturned. We should take this opportunity to examine and improve some of our systems that have left so many people vulnerable. In part one of this three-part episode, we looked at one set of programs the federal government created to stop the immediate hemorrhaging, a stopgap to the near-term problems like eviction suspension relief for renters. Mark Calabria, the director of Federal Housing Finance Agency, discussed what his agency has put in place for the near term. In part two, we looked at the predictable confusion that resulted from different cities, counties, and states developing and enforcing different policies and programs at the local level, where in some cases, a county line determines the rules and enforcement. Deidre Woolard is an editor at Million Acres, a division of Motley Fool, and she has cataloged the state-by-state -state responses to COVID-19. She spoke about how the lack of a single vision or strategy to unify the way cities, counties, and states approach the problem is allowing confusion to brew in the country. If you go to our Facebook page, Create the Village, you'll find a link to her report there. She has been updating it daily. In part three, I want to begin framing out what the future can mean. Long before COVID-19, it was clear that something was happening throughout urban America. Cities like Seattle, Denver, Austin, and Atlanta were experiencing rapid gentrification. At the same time, 
Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York were undergoing a population exodus, while Detroit, St. Louis, Buffalo, and Youngstown were limping along after their economies collapsed decades ago. Regional transportation systems, both road and transit, were strained or crumbling, housing costs were booming, or we were in freefall, and public schools were either overcrowded, vacant, or were turned into charters or vouchers. The question for us now is, how can we take advantage of this opportunity to examine and improve what has left so many people vulnerable? In this final installment, I will talk with David Dworkin, president of the National Housing Conference. I plan to ask him about an infrastructure package and whether that's the opportunity to address policies and programs that support the so-called missing middle of our economy. That is, families who make too much to qualify for housing rental subsidy, but not enough to own a home. Long before COVID-19, David advocated for a national rental assistance program. I want to understand what he has in mind and what we can expect to happen. Here's the conversation. David Dworkin. David, good afternoon. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm assuming this wasn't live. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's not live. Okay. Yeah, that would be painful. Um, no, David, so thank you very, very much for doing this. Sure. Happy to do it. So, you know, the White House and Congress have put measures in place to halt, uh, temporarily at least, halt evictions related to COVID-19. But you have argued that that's great, but the country needs, and you've said this for some time, needs a long-term plan for its renters, and you've called for a national rental assistance program. Uh, what does that plan include as you see it, and how would that work? So I think that in terms of rental assistance, we need to think about this holistically, that the renters who are not receiving full unemployment insurance coverage and who are unemployed need to be compensated for their rent, it's equally important that the apartment owners be paid um, because, in fact, um, the, uh, the apartment owners are responsible for, among other things, keeping the building clean, which is incredibly important from a health standpoint. We also don't want apartment owners to go out of business and be replaced by hedge funds. So uh, we've approached this as a need for rental assistance for anyone who has lost their job uh, or had a severe economic dislocation as a result of COVID-19 and is not receiving funds elsewhere. So if you're getting unemployment insurance and covering your full unemployment insurance, you should pay your rent. If you still have a job, you should pay your rent. This is not a rent holiday. But if you can't pay your rent because you've lost your job or because you're sick or you're um, significant other is sick and, and unemployed, we need to make sure that um, your rent is being paid and it needs to be covered uh, and not just forbearance. Forbearance um, is fine in the mortgage world because the payment goes on to the back end of the loan and if the interest isn't um, uh, accrued, then there's really no, no harm for the borrower for a renter to have forbearance and then not have that rent covered 
means that three, six, nine months from now, you end up owing a sum of money you can't possibly repay and end up getting evicted anyway. And if the rent isn't covered, but you don't have to pay for it, then the apartment building may go out of business. And that means that there won't be staff to really take care of the building and, and, and interact with the tenants at a time when it's really essential that that happen. So what we're urging people is if you've been affected by this, you haven't received unemployment insurance, you can't pay your rent, you need to talk to your landlord immediately. And to landlords, we're encouraging them to reach out to your tenants. Communication is critical, and in this case, our interests are very aligned with each other, and that makes communication even more important. So on the rental side, I think it's very important that the government recognize that this is not a so-called moral hazard issue. This is not where anybody was at fault or irresponsible. This is the equivalent of crossing the street with the light in a crosswalk and getting hit by a bus whose brakes are broken. I mean, it just um, is not about blame. It's about mitigating the long-term impact on the economy and on the housing economy in particular so that we don't actually end up with two or three crises rather than the one we have now. And how how have you how do you feel that's been received? Has there been any um, reception to that mm -hmm. argument in the circles? Yes, I think there's a lot of agreement that we need supplemental rental insurance. I think there's a lot of alignment between tenant advocates and apartment building owners that it's in everyone's interest that the apartment buildings be protected as the um, renters are protected. And the big question that everybody is struggling with right now is what's the most efficient and effective way to get that rental assistance out? And there have been a variety of methods that have been looked at. Um, for those who are already receiving rental assistance, changes to the HUD Section 8 rental assistance voucher program, the housing voucher program, is the easiest way to address it. But for those that are making less than the area median income and have never really been in the system before, uh, and now find themselves unable to make their rental payments, that's uh, a scenario that we really got to be thoughtful about and get that money out um, as soon as possible. Well, so uh, if the, and obviously there are a number of categories inside of the rental housing market, there's something certainly for less than 60% of area median, there's at least a source of funds to help produce, though not enough, to help produce housing affordable in that group. And the market sort of takes care of itself. But in that middle, we, we often call the missing middle, there aren't enough tools there. And I would imagine that that's where most of the fragility exists. Would you agree with that? Mm -hmm. I think that um, normally we look at this as 60% of area immediate income or less, um, or even 80%. Uh, my view is, is that we really need to be looking at the entire population under 100% of area immediate income, 
if they've lost their job, their median income has gone from 100% of area median income to zero. And so what we need to do is quickly recognize that many of these people, maybe most of these people, are not going right back to work. Some of them have um, worked for companies that have gone out of business already. Some of them have gone uh, to work for companies and have been laid off for companies that aren't out of business now, but they may be out of business in three to six months. We're looking at having unemployment at 20%. Uh, that's 25 to 30 million people. Uh, and so saying to 5 million of those people, oh, well, you were making too much money before, so you're just going to have to become homeless is not reasonable or realistic. And it has a potential huge, potentially huge impact on the rest of the economy. So I do think we need to look at this non-traditionally. Initially, there's pretty broad agreement to address the population that's 80% of area median income or less. Um, there's a, um, I would say, constructive debate up to 100% of area median income. But we really need to understand better what, how many people are in each of these categories and in what markets. In most of the country, 80% of area median income is going to be fine, and it is going to cover the vast majority of renters. But in high-cost markets, it's clearly not the case. And we're going to have to be creative in those areas because we don't need a eviction and for you know or foreclosure crisis in the case of homeowners six months or nine months from now. We certainly don't want a financial crisis to follow the health care crisis. So, so if you let's stay with that a minute. You know the the next bill is supposed to be an infrastructure bill, and mm-hmm. I I made a comment to someone the other day that. Perhaps it's time for us to, and I know there are many people across the industry that have been trying to make this argument, but um, that we should have affordable housing as a part of our infrastructure bill. And perhaps, Mm -hmm. for example, and I'm not sure um, how pervasive it is, I know it's in a number of uh, states that the private activity bond allocation has been pretty much used up and we're only months into this year, and in fact in some states, Georgia being one, they have enough applications to use up about half of next year's allocations already, and we're in April of 2020. So perhaps if you combine the notion that affordable housing should be a part of infrastructure and that um, a an addition to the private activity bond cap allocation in the near term for for the next two or three years could go a hell of a way towards creating tools for supply that would both juice the industry again and also start to address some of the production of it. It doesn't deal with the rental payment issue that we're describing, but we also have a supply issue that if not addressed, um, will also exacerbate the problem a little bit more. So I think that's a really good point, and we need to look at this holistically. We also need to put it in perspective. We had a housing supply crisis for the COVID-19 crisis, and we've had uh, rising rents, um, in some cases 
ridiculously high rents around uh, in, in, in certain markets that nobody can afford and not nearly enough affordable housing being built for a range of reasons. And um, we were all working together on trying to solve that problem before this happened. Now we have a little different problem, and it both, I think, exacerbates the previous issue as well as creates a range of new issues for us. But clearly, the changes in the um, housing tax credit programs are really important. Private activity bond cap, making the 4% credit the technical area that, um, but there's, you know, two types of low income housing tax credits. Um, they operate a little differently. Uh, one is called the 9% credit that has been level set. So it actually is at 9% because interest rates are so low. The 4% credit is worth somewhat north of 3%. And the, difference in these numbers is how much equity it generates to be able to build affordable housing. So that's really important. And we want to be able to use those tax credit programs to build the most amount of housing we possibly can. The other piece that you mentioned is the issue of infrastructure. It's interesting, you know, the National Housing Conference was founded in 1931. And our first legislative victory was in the 1933 um, Industrial Recovery Act, which was the first major infrastructure bill of the 20th century. And we were able to get President Roosevelt to agree to include the construction of rental housing in that bill, which um, uh, was not in the bill when it was initially drafted. And we clearly are in a situation here where um, housing infrastructure is an important part of our economic recovery you know, in 1933, our slogan was jobs are housing and housing are jobs. And when we think about the number of people who are going to be unemployed and the need to re-employ them, not necessarily in the same industries or companies that they were with before, um, housing construction could be a major part of that recovery. And we really need to think about it in those terms. Uh, and uh, in addition to the traditional way we've looked at it, terms of housing supply and demand. Well, no, David, thank you for that answer because I got a lesson in education there. I did not know that about the um, infrastructure and housing connection back in the 30s. That's uh, very insightful, and maybe maybe people on the Hill need to be aware of, made aware of that specifically as well so it doesn't feel like something foreign but instead something that may be more like back to the future. Um, yes, indeed, and I think that um, we are going to have to look to the example of the 1930s in a variety of ways. One is that we built a lot of affordable housing in the 1930s in an effort to bring people back to work and help lift people out of really horrifically substandard housing. And the other is that we funded a program called the Homeowner Loan Corporation which allowed for homeowners to refinance their mortgages um, and have the lost um, equity as a result of the Great Depression forgiven. We're not there yet, um, but if we have a collapse in housing values as a result of this crisis, I think we're going to have to take a long, hard look at that and consider the kind of relief that we had available in the Great Depression and that we refused to do in the Great Recession 10 to 12 years ago 
and paid a huge price for that. Well, and you said something a moment ago that I think should not go uh, without being repeated, and that is that even though the focus, even though we're talking about housing, the truth is it is a tremendous job creation program if we were able to get substantial supply of um, housing development into the pipeline. And so you're, you're killing two birds with one stone. You're addressing that basic need of having a, a shortage of affordable housing. And at the same time, you're doing job creation for a significant segment of the workforce that will be suffering from unemployment as a result of the recession. Um, so yeah, we'd all like to think this is going to, you know, end with the uh, end of the health care crisis. The fact is, is that the economy is going to take much longer to recover, um, and we already have put a lot of stimulus. In many ways, the Fed and the federal government, to a certain extent, have fired most of their bullets already, right. and we're going to have to think very creatively about how to address it. So, David, in that regard, and you, you really kind of answered this. I just want to see if there's anything you'd like to add to mm -hmm. it. But one of the questions I had was, how was the housing industry doing before the pandemic? And what do you anticipate in this recession will mean for the nation's housing stock? And you sort of touched on it, but just put a fine point on that for me, please. I think that, you know, one of the legacy impacts of the housing crisis of 10 years ago is that we lost a lot of home builders who were building affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And they took the brunt of the um, damage to the housing markets. Any of those went out of business. They have not come back. We've permanently lost some significant part of that capacity. It's had a direct impact in the number of homes we build, and the law of supply and demand is never repealed. So if you are building fewer homes, you are going to have higher prices. And I like to think of this as a continuum. If you have lower home ownership as a result of this, you end up with more renters. And more renters and no increase and rental property means you're going to have much higher rents. And when you have higher rents, that works its way through the entire system until you end up with more homeless people. And the number of homeless people we have in this country is um, horrific and a major both moral imperative but also a health imperative in this crisis. We need to look at the whole issue and take all of it seriously. And I do not believe... Um, that message and connecting the dots is as prevalent, certainly not um, as it ought to be in the minds of policymakers up on the Hill, and it's something that probably needs a lot more attention so that those dots are in fact connected, because I think a lot of the policy seems to be chimney-oriented, as if these things do exist in silos. So I pre appreciate that perspective. Um, I have a couple minutes, and let you go. I, I don't know if you had any last thoughts you would like to leave us with. Um, I think that, you know, crises like this bring out the best in people and the worst in people. And in the housing industry, we really need to think about how we bring out the best in each other. This is an opportunity to really work across ideological and um, uh, other lines that we don't usually cross. We're all sharing the same interests here. We're all impacted by the same virus. The virus doesn't care about our ideologies or opinions on uh, government funding. Um, and 
we um, we're going to have to work together. And I think there's good evidence that, um, at least in the housing industry, there's a lot of interest in working across traditional lines. Okay, fantastic. All right, David, thank you very much, and thank you for everything you do on the field. I know it's a battlefield, and I appreciate you soldiering on. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 2020.